Welcome everyone to a special edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross and today's episode is our conversation with Steve Flink on Australian Open 2023. First 30 minutes or so, very heavy on Novak Djokovic with Stefano Tsitsipas mixed in there. Uh, just kind of reacting to the final and looking at that stuff big picture. And then the second half hour is a lot of the other storylines that emerged and uh, the things that that were important in the first week of the tournament. So much of what was important came in the first week of, it, of the tournament. Rafael Nadal and Daniil Medvedev and Andy Murray and Tommy Paul and Holger Runa. All those guys discussed, as well as uh, Carlos Alcaraz at the very end, just looking ahead for the remainder of the season or the next couple months with uh, with Alcaraz coming back. So I think you will enjoy it and happy to do it again. Without further ado, here is Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink for the traditional post-major chat. Steve, I, I actually was thinking just before we got on, I, I wanted to check how long we've been doing this. So I went back and I actually looked. The first time you were on this YouTube channel was February of, I'm sorry, January of 2017, after the okay. 2017 Australian Open. No, nice. And that, that was, uh, yeah, I'd just come back from, I'd been there for the second year in a row. Yeah, it's hard to believe, Gil, that six years, that's six years ago and that we've been doing it that long. It's gone by very swiftly. I, I agree. It is insane <laughs> to think about. I was much and you, worse. And you, and, you were, and you were, I think, 10 years old then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was much worse at this. I was much more awkward. You you were good. I was not. Eh. Uh, <laughs> um, after that 2017 Australian Open, we were talking about a Federer championship. Here in 2023, we are going to start with the Novak Djokovic championship. A historic one, number 22, his 10th Australian Open title. Let's start here. Uh, what impressed you most about the entirety of Novak Djokovic's title run at this event? Well, I, I think what, what struck me was there were some shades of 2021 because of battling an injury. And, and I think those that were skeptical don't have much of a foundation for that. Anybody who watched him play in Adelaide, you probably watched it, Gil, when he, I saw him when he actually injured it against Medvedev, and it's in the seventh game of the match, and he, he goes for a medical timeout after the, with a 5-2 lead in the first set. Uh, and, and it was clear that he had an issue, and he was hobbled, and he was able to play through the match, and it wasn't dire yet, but you knew there was something, and I think there was suspicions of it the next day against Corden. Then, then you trace back to the period leading up to the start of the Australian Open, Gil, and uh, walking away from practice session with Medvedev after the first set when they were due to play another because he wanted to protect it. Then all the news about not playing on his days off and then the strapping. So it was clear in the early rounds that things were not right. His draw was good and he probably wasn't going to lose to those guys unless something got really, really serious and he and he jarred it uh, flagrantly. But I, I was impressed how well he managed all that and, and then how he dealt with Dimitrov which was the first serious real test for him in the third round, still hurting, still getting medical timeouts, but winning in straight sets and starting to lift his game a bit. And then I thought from Demonora on, he was, he was remarkable. And 
it was what I liked about that period of the term is I thought it, it was clear that he was physically feeling better again. It wasn't gone. You wouldn't keep wearing the strapping if you weren't still a little concerned about it. But he was playing with much more freedom and moving with more alacrity and things were more Djokovic-like. So I feel like considering everything that had happened, Gil, a year ago with the deportation and the humiliation of all that, which could so easily have been avoided by the Australian authorities, and to then have to worry about have this injury weighing on his mind, I, I thought it was a tremendous effort. And then, of course, the other thing that stands out was the post-match reaction after the final, not only screaming out, as he will occasionally do, just as a release, but to greet his mother and his brother and hug them and then lie down and you could see what it had taken out of him and then to go back down to the court and be crying into his towel reminiscent a bit about when he was toward the end of his match with Medvedev at the 2021 US Open when the crowd gave him such vocal support near the end so I I, I feel like it, he really will no matter what happens from here on in, I think he's always going to talk about this tournament and what it meant to him because he didn't believe it. And I think that was also sincere. I don't know how you felt about it. I thought he did not. He really was worried those first three rounds and he wasn't even thinking about winning the tournament. And it wasn't until he devoured Demonor and crushed him in straight sets that he began to think to himself, you know what, I can actually go all the way. If I keep managing the injury, I keep not playing on my days off, I go in and get the treatment on the machines, I take the anti-inflammatories, the, the anti do all the things I need to do, I can get this done. So I, I think it was another example of his discipline, determination, and, and uh, sort of unflagging spirit that he could pull this off uh, under the circumstances. And I, I think the reaction at the end and all of that put together, which, which, you, which you stated so well, a combination of wanting it so badly because of what happened last year and the fear and stress and, and all of the extra energy that he had to spend on, on managing the injury. And those two things combined, I think, made for a perfect storm where you have an incredibly emotional victory. But it was so dominant. I mean, the only difference between... 2021 and this one is 2021 where you have that Fritz match. Yes, the five very much. Yeah, very yeah. much looked like he was going to lose. Yeah, because you're right because he won the first two sets, dropped the next two, and then was very relieved when he got an early break in the fifth and finished off with another and screamed out with it. The place was empty by that point. His fans had been sent home, and yeah, you could see the relief then. You're right. Uh, uh, there are there are parallels, and then there's some big differences because this time. One set in the tournament he lost, and, and that's in the second round, and it's a tiebreaker. And it's a tiebreaker where he led, won the first three points. So, I mean, it, it, yes, the draw was, was comfortable in its way. He didn't have to play Holger Runa in the quarters. I think that would have been tougher psychologically than Rube Lev. All right. And Tommy Paul, it's a nice semifinal opponent. But be that as, as it may, there still was tremendous pressure on him to beat these guys. And also, I think he was very... He was a little um, extra concerned, Gil, about getting the job done quickly and not wanting to put too much of a demand on that leg. So get off the court as soon as possible. Get it done. He kept saying, I really wanted to win this match in straight sets. You don't hear you usually hear him talking. Obviously, he's trying to do it, but you wouldn't hear him emphasize it. So, yes, it was it was a uh, it was a supreme effort on his part. Yeah, I actually did have some concerns about him physically. I thought there there was some vulnerability shown in the Tommy Paul match when the rallies got very, very long. 
And I wasn't sure. I thought that was maybe Tsitsipas' best chance to just make it very, very physical and, and come out the stronger man in that kind of match. But I think one of the common themes for Novak with how well he was serving, how big he was hitting his forehand, was he didn't need to rely on his legs as much as maybe an earlier iteration of Novak would have had to. Uh, I mean, one of the things I was saying in the early rounds is, look, we're going to find out that Novak Djokovic can beat 99% of the tour without hitting open stance sliding backhands. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it did. It did. Absolutely, it did. I I would say also regarding your your reference to the Tommy Paul match, yeah, yes, the commentators also were concerned about that too. Uh, Darren Cahill and others were wondering how much, how... uh, how serious it was early in the second set. But of course he had the cushion of the first set, which, which got a little complicated after he led five, one 40, 30, and suddenly it's five all, but he closed that set out in, with a lot of composure. And then it was early in the second that he looked a bit uh, drained physically, mm-hmm. as you said, but it doesn't last. He, he plays his way through it. I agree with you. I had, I had concerns too, but you just always get the feeling he'll weather that storm and then move on. And, and he does that so frequently. And it reminds me of what uh, I was on the guest on a special on the History Channel, uh, their podcast okay. about Bjorn Borg. And John Lloyd was talking about how he once asked Borg if he ever got tired. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like he never would will. And Bjorn said, oh, I think once I did, but it lasted about two minutes. <laughs> I, I feel that Novak is similar. Yeah, there'll be a brief spell, maybe where a couple of games you see him struggling or slumped over his racket a bit, and you're, he his his consternation shows. But then he 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 just plays through it, and as long and and suddenly after five minutes, you feel like he's got strength back because the rest of the Paul match was really quite smooth those last couple of sets. So in, yeah. in other words, from five all in the first set, he wins 14 in the last 17. But once he kind of held on to his service break early in the second and moved out in front three love, you had later, later ex- extended that lead. You just felt like he, he was physically okay again. Didn't you feel that way? Yes, but I also think the points got very, very short, which was by his design and by yeah. his doing. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, his design, and it's interesting, uh, Gil, because you're right, and the, the weight of that forehand, and obviously all the stats are there, up five, six, seven miles an hour faster than it was a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, it, it's very impressive that he's able to hit that hard and harder and make so few errors. It seems like he, he doesn't make any more errors than he did. You know, at 81 miles an hour, it doesn't seem any difference from 75 in terms of and mistakes. But Tommy Paul... I felt like he, he would get in these long rallies with Novak and do a pretty good job of holding his own. But then Novak will make a deep return down the middle, the trademark deep return down the middle, and Tommy misses the first shot. So there were some rallies he just didn't stay in. And and you can't, I don't blame him, but I'm saying that also helps when you know you can you can coax these errors quickly off a guy that maybe just took you into a 32-stroke exchange. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the final against Tsitsipas, um, it's 10 straight for Novak now in this head-to-head. How do you explain Djokovic's dominance over a guy who's finished four in the world two years in a row, has been at the top of the, the game now f- for a while, and he can't seem to get Djokovic? Even when they play close matches, it's 
one stat I want to throw out here before I, I give you the floor. Five straight tie breaks that these two have played have gone to Novak. Yeah. Gil, it's such a great question. And I, I thought of, I thought a lot about it. And at this level, it's very, very difficult to beat another top player 10 consecutive times. And Sitsipas, he's gotten so many cracks at him at times when he's been playing pretty well, like finals of the Italian Open. He came in there pretty confident. Djokovic was actually having a just trying to find his form in the clay court season after having missed the Australian last year. So that wasn't he was just sort of getting closer to the top of his game. You would have thought it was a good opportunity. Love in six. There's another tie break for you. And and then it went it went from there. A couple more matches along the way. Then then they you know one final and they had that great semifinal in the in the Paris Bercy event that Novak won from three four. He was down a mini break four three in the tie break in the third. He wins four points in a row. You're right. There's some of them have been kind of harrowing skirmishes. Others more comfortable. I don't know. I can't. I just feel like maybe the biggest mistake that Stefano Tsitsipas ever made was beating Novak Djokovic two of the first three times they met, because he 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 was on his radar, and I think I think Djokovic respected what Stefanos did against him in those early meetings, and he seems to have primed for him every time since. And you're right, some close, but it seems to alternate. Like they went from the Bear Sea event to to uh, the year-end championships in turn. And that one was straight sets, even though the second was another tiebreak. And so that one reminded me a bit of the Australian Open final, where Djokovic gets one break early, and that might even be it in a best of three, and but keeps holding his own serve. I mean, obviously, we can get to the obvious point being that he's a better player, and Stefanos knows he's a better player. We, we can get to the fact that back end to back end, Djokovic is far superior with his two-hander, even as beautiful a stroke as Stefanos has on this one-handed topspin back end. And that I feel the other thing is that Novak takes away Stefanos's greatest strength, his forehand, which is so dominant against other players. I feel like Djokovic at the least nullifies it, and for the most part, he outguns him. He can take the pace. He can defend. He can just go toe to toe and hit a little bit harder and a little deeper. And suddenly, uh, Sitsipas is feeling the burden of it all, and he's pressing a bit off his forehand. It's understandable why. And then the last point would be that even though Sitsipas has an underrated serve and he only lost his serve twice in three sets against Novak, uh, he has such a difficult time breaking Djokovic as everybody else did in the tournament. Six breaks and seven matches. That's all he. That's all he lost his serve. And he only lost it the one time against Sitsipas at the start of the third set of the final. So I, I look at all those factors. The fact that forehand to forehand, he, he seems he's better, which is remarkable because John McEnroe said before the match that he thought that that was the one edge that Stefanos had was the forehand. But I don't really agree with that. I think that Djokovic is, is better and clearly better off the backhand. And even though he doesn't serve quite as big as Stefanos, um, he serves big enough and he finds the corners and it's precision and it's consistency and it's how he backs it up. So I guess, you know, in the end, it's a good matchup, even though he is, he is severely challenged as you alluded to. Yeah. Uh, the, the forehand in the final was on the Novak side of things was certainly more reliable um, than, than Stefanos's, and that wasn't close, and I thought that was a big key. And then when it comes to breaking serve, I just think Djokovic attacks that backhand return and that backhand defense 
really expertly in the way that he he opens up the court and he never gets predictable just going at Tsitsipas's backhand over and over again. And uh, what I said on on my show on Monday right after the final is uh, that I, I almost feel like if you don't bring a great backhand to the table, Djokovic will almost beat you every time. I mean, Berrettini and Rude and Tsitsipas, none of them have had any luck against Novak. So that was another thing. That's that a good point. point That's a very good point. And it's very, I, 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 I fundamentally agree with that. The other thing he does well against Stefanos is, is that, I mean, the perfect example, I think is the four or five set point down in the second set where Tsitsipas was hitting with pretty good de- depth and just waiting for an opening. Some people criticized him later for not being a little more aggressive. I'm, I'm not necessarily on that side of the coin because I feel like he was, he was, the depth was there and he just was hoping he'd get something a little shorter that he could step in and hit. Didn't happen. And then suddenly Novak steps around off a fairly deep ball and, and hits the forehand inside in, you know, with, with, at a, with a good margin for error and hits, hits the outright winner and he's out of a jam. And then you look at match point is the other one I think of is that after that, it looked like a runaway tiebreak for Djokovic, and a fan screamed out with Djokovic about to hit a backhand after he won the first five points, and that made it 5-1. There was a big difference from 6-zip to 5-1. But on match point at 6-5 on his own serve, the third match point, he hit a beautiful forehand inside in, you know, not terribly deep, but very near the sideline, and he coaxed. And that will definitely catch his Stefanos off guard because he's just looking for the standard cross-court back in response to his backhand, and he's got a lot of court to cover. So that, I guess there's so many of these areas that we're talking about here that contribute to Djokovic having the edge over a first-rate adversary. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point, Steve. I mean, the pattern on those two crucial points is the same. It was a, a Tsitsipas backhand cross to an inside-in Djokovic forehand winner. Yeah. Uh, are you still a, are you a believer right now? I shouldn't say still. Uh, are you a believer right now that Tsitsipas ends up with a major title in his career? Yes, yes, I am. Okay, I, me, I me as well. And one of the re- reasons why, Gil, I thought the reaction we've seen him react to other defeats with almost petulance. If you take an example of the Rublev loss in the year-end championships, where he went on about how he has more variety and everybody knows it, and it comes off so poorly because. You've lost the match. Just acknowledge the other guy was better than you are. But what he did in acknowledging Novak and Novak setting the bar so high and 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 how he'd given it his all, I thought that was a very healthy attitude in defeat, knowing that he had prepared, he dreamed of victory, he'd given himself every chance he could coming in to be ready, and knowing that he just lost to a better player. But I just feel like, okay, listen, Novak's going to be around a couple more years. He may, He's probably going to continue to haunt Stefanos, but Stefanos has got a, a good window of seven, eight years left at, at, at the top levels. I, I'm convinced of that, maybe more. And I think over time, and again, Novak, there's going to be times Novak could lose to somebody else. He could lose to an Alcaraz. Now, Stefanos has to prove that he can beat Carlos, too. That's another story. But I do believe with his mentality, his drive, his professionalism, with the help of Mark Philippoussis. Now, that's another question I have, Gil. I don't know how you feel about this, but I watch his father gesticulating during these matches and correcting him on his strokes and, tell, you know, and just in, incredibly emotional, understandable, but I don't think he's, I don't frankly don't think he's doing him much good with that kind of uh, 
you know, giving him a lesson after every missed stroke and telling him where he technically went wrong. And there's Philip Pusa sitting there with a sad look on his face and knowing that he can't, he's not going to be chiming in this. It's not his style. But I wish his, his, the, his father would let Mark do the talking. And I wish he'd let him have a little more authority because I think he knows the game much better than, than Stefanos' dad does with all due respect. And that could also make a difference. Do you agree? I do. I, I think it's, it's totally fair. And the critiquing of the technique uh, mid-match is something that, I mean, you've been watching the game for such a long time. I know I, I don't see that. Uh, I don't see that from players' boxes um, almost ever in the middle of a match. Now, I know coaching used to be legal. Uh, I mean, illegal. It hasn't been legal for that long. But I've heard countless pros say that, you know, once it comes down to playing the match, you no longer want to be thinking about your strokes. And it's about beating the guy in front of you and getting in the right mindset and having the right, right. tactics. Absolutely right. So in that sense, his father is getting in the way, not intentionally. He wants the best for his son, but I don't think it's helping. But Regardless, it's it's a second Grand Slam final. He had that opportunity against Novak in the Roland Garros 21. And and I think that was a heartbreaker for him. Although after winning the first two sets, he never really had a chance in the last three sets. He was complete. That was a different kind of match. Lots of breaks for Novak in that match across the last three sets. But still, those are two finals. He loses them both to Djokovic. No disgrace. He keeps working hard at his craft. I just can't imagine... He's not getting on the board probably a couple of times. And also, I, I think he's going to improve. I, I can't believe he's not going to improve as a grass court player and that he's not going to finally make a showing at the U.S. Open. There's just no reason for the, this stream of losses he's had in New York, with the exception of the Carlos match in 21. That was understandable because Alcaraz was coming of age in a way in that match. That was a big stepping stone match. But I, I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about sits a pass. I mean, you see a couple for him as well. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It it concerns me a little bit that the only Masters 1000 he's bagged thus far is Monte Carlo and there have been some underperformances in finals, but at the end of the day, I, I think with with his level and what I've seen from him mentally early on in this year, I was very encouraged by cuz I thought he had an off year in 2022 mentally, just some matches where I don't think he competed that well and I think we agreed on that. Uh, as long as he can put that behind him, his athleticism, his skill, his work ethic, I think we'll do the rest and, and he'll get there. Yeah, and I, I think attitude really does matter. And I, and I think the comments that he made in the presentation ceremony were very sincere. I did, I, I, you know, he's an interesting guy because sometimes he says and does the wrong things. But I also think he's pretty honest uh, in his remarks, in his comments. He's telling you what he really thinks. And I think he, he, he really... When he said that Novak was the greatest player of all time, he meant it. And I don't think it was fall. I don't think it was phony praise. And if you can be sincere that way and then be honest about what you gave yourself, I that I'm, I'm encouraged. You're right. Uh, he's got to start winning more tournaments in general, especially some Masters 1000s outside of Monte Carlo, outside of the clay. Um, and and I think he will. I think that's going to happen too. And uh, I. I We'll see. I mean, it, I don't think he has to feel too rushed, Gil. There's, there's time, and it doesn't happen, have to happen in 23 because there'll be many big years ahead of him after that. Absolutely. Uh, let's go back and discuss some of the storylines that we saw throughout the tournament. It was actually, I thought, a, 
an event that was almost first week heavy in terms of the intrigue and some of the eye-popping results. The second week, you had a lot of uncompetitive contests on both the men's and the women's side. Uh, so let's go all the way back early in the tournament. This feels like three years ago, Steve, uh, to, to Rafael Nadal uh, getting you know, squeaking by Jack Draper, who, who had an injury in that match. And then, and then ultimately, um, losing to, uh, not Nakashima, the guy who beat Nakashima. McDonald, McDonald, Matthew McDonald. You see, I mean, it just feels so long ago. Um, Rafa, um, I had not been alarmed about Nadal's 2023 prospects until this showing at the Australian Open. And and he had been losing before then, you know, fall of last year, United Cup this year went 0-2. I really wasn't that alarmed. Now that there's another injury, I feel like Rafa is on thin ice with his body and that this stop-start, stop-start is unsustainable and it's going to start affecting his level in a bad way. And, you know, at his advanced age, there's also a question of how much can he take. So I'm at the point where I I am a little bit alarmed about about Rafa getting back to the very top. You know, your view is shared by I've I've heard it expressed in a very similar fashion by other people in the industry lately, you know, not necessarily as eloquently as you just did, but sharing that viewpoint. I'm not quite there yet. I, I, but I'm concerned for the reasons you are, you, you know, first of all, just the losing pattern post Wimbledon, where he did manage to, to squeak by Taylor Fritz and make the semis and had a default, obviously. And then it has not been good for him ever since. And he was fortunate in a way to even make the fourth round of the U S open played decently enough along the way before Tiapo, but still just has not, it, it's been a discouraging, discouraging stretch. And when he, when he talks about, playing well in losses and it doesn't matter. And I don't, I don't really think he believes that deep down. I think, you know, he prides himself on winning and you can't lose as frequently as he has and not be concerned. So, and then the other thing, Gil, is the, the, the mounting injuries. I mean, this was another, this was a new one, the hip, upper left leg, whatever it ultimately was. How many more new ones can he get? Abdominal and uh, I mean. He had the rib last year, March of last year. Yeah, exactly. And then in the meantime, the foot somehow has been behaving lately. But when does that act up again? Because that's where it required that's what required all those shots, injections before every match at the French last year. And so you wonder, OK, it's a lot of things to be worried about in the back of your mind, these prior injuries. And then he has to worry about what might what what's the brand new one. So I, I think, he, frankly, he'd be very wise to forget about Indian Wells in Miami. I mean, why rush back for that? Why not just save yourself for the clay and try mm-hmm. to play a regular three, four clay court tournaments and go after Roland Garros again and see if that being back in the happiest, on your happiest surface, it, it might be the way to go because also a chance to build some confidence because on clay, he's just so much better than just about everybody else that even if he's closer to 80, 85%, he's still going to win mo- almost all the time. So I, ho- I hope that he does not rush back. I, don't, I just don't see the point of charging into Indian Wells or Miami and, and risking more losses and risking more injuries because it's hard courts. Totally agree. And, and, you know, he he wants to get into a match rhythm. 
in hindsight, it seems like he came back too soon at Cincinnati. I think he just didn't want to go into the U.S. Open without any match play. It's probably yeah. what he should have done in hindsight. Uh, and and I agree with you. You look to the clay, and the one thing is, Steve, historically, that surface with his health has kind of had magical healing powers yeah. oftentimes. So oftentimes, that's the hope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Last year, that was not true in the right. sense of what happened along the way pre-Roland Garros. And then, you know, he left Rome and people uh, very worried about him then after Shapovalov. And, and yet it all came true in Paris, despite having to deal with those injections. No, it's a critical phase. It's a critical phase. So you figure he should really put the premium on trying to get a 15th French Open title and trying to be, uh, you know, get enough match play along the way and just even just even working his way into some quarters and semis would be a step in the right direction from where he's been. Yeah. I want to talk about um, American tennis for a second, which I don't feel that bad about because uh, I think it's so compelling right now. I know a lot of people watching actually don't care about American tennis, but there's so many players here that are interesting. Uh, you have two majors in a row now, two hardcourt majors in a row where you have an American in the semis. Tiafo at the U.S. Open and Tommy Paul here at the Australian Open. Korda almost beat Djokovic in Adelaide. He's been the closest player all year to beating Novak. Ben Shelton has gotten off to an incredible start in his professional career. He's already, if he's not top 50, he's close to top 50, and he's only been playing for a couple months. Meanwhile, Taylor Fritz is the highest ranked player, the, the player who has proven himself to be a top 10 guy. So you have all of these things going on um, in the men's game with American tennis. I'm going to ask you a question that I think is pretty tough. Who finishes this year as the top ranked American? Are you, are you going with Fritz or do you think someone else can, can come up and, and take over that spot? What I like about Fritz is the, he's got what I would call mental and physical resilience. You know, he takes a loss like he did against Holt at the U.S. Open. And that was jarring for him because he, in the back of his mind, thought he had a shot to win the tournament, and so did others. And yet, he just seems to move past it in a hurry. I, I don't feel like he dwells on any losses, and he keeps, he goes on uh, believing in himself and just working hard at his game. And, and at his best, you know, he's got an awful lot of, aggressive tools working for him. So I, it's going to be hard to remove him from that spot. But the one who I, honestly, I think has the best chance and I, but it'll depend on the injuries is Corda. Corda, there's a big upside with Corda. I mean, look at, as you just said, I mean, he's got a match point against Novak and Adelaide. Great performance there. And then look who he beat. He beat Medvedev and Herkash at the Australian Open. And I think we, you know, who knows what would have happened against Hatchinoff if he doesn't hurt the wrist. But still, He's in the quarters, and uh, I, I feel like that was a real step in the right direction. And I, I'm, I'm thinking now if he can get over these injuries, and there have been too many of them, and just get on a little bit of a roll, that, that there's so much easy power. That he said so much natural ability with him. I'm amazed how, how easily he can take control of rallies, and the serve is underrated, and he's, he's a good competitor. So I see him making a big step. Tiapo, I, I think, will have a similarly good year, maybe a more consistent year this time. Tommy Paul will, I think, stay where he is. But in the end, I think that might there'll be a three-way battle, in my view, between 
uh, Fritz, Tiapo, and Corda to see who, who is the top American at the end of the year. There's a little friendly competition there. But I must say, I'm sure you felt the same way too. Tommy Paul's a, he's a real professional. And I was glad that he took advantage of a good draw and found himself in the semifinals and played a nice first set against Novak. And I, I, I think, you know, he, 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 had, he had a lot of disappointing, frustrating losses last year. He was very opportunistic this time. And he deserved his place in the penultimate round of that tournament. Absolutely. I think he did beat, he did have a nice draw in terms of avoiding top players. I do think he beat a lot of top 50 level guys, yeah. uh, including Ben Shelton, who uh, yeah. wasn't ranked in the top 50, but really, I think we, we see him that way. But right now he's 19 in the world, Tommy Paul. And I, I agree with you. I think that's about right for him. Um, I agree about Corda and the injuries. Staying healthy is going to be a, a big key for him. I think he needs to just cut down on the errors in his matches. I think that was going to be the advantage that Hachinov had over him, even if if they did stay healthy, is that he's just steadier from the back. Um, I would still kind of put my money on Fritz right now. I think he's the safest bet, uh, but he I is. agree with you. Oh, he is. You're right. He's the safest bet, but I think that the court is going to make a leap, and I think at the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if those three guys were all ranked between seven and 12 in the world agreed which is incredible uh let me ask yeah. you about medvedev who as you mentioned sebastian corda beat and beat convincingly very convincingly medvedev's had a tough stretch here he's outside of the top 10 now which is uh it's it's strange to see him there i don't i'm not sure that's right i think he's better than his ranking at this point but i i also feel pretty confident that you know he got to number one in the world last year around March, I don't think he's ever going to get back. I just think there are too many holes in his game that now the top players understand exactly how to exploit. Gil, would you say holes or limitations? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, good question. Limitations is probably a better word. The okay. power, the power on the forehand, for example, the right. inability to, adjust the return position would be another example slice works against him players who come to net uh very frequently against him and, and quickly against him that works well against him so i think that there are a lot of things that are difficult to execute but if players could do it they are having success now yeah i think it's a great assessment of him i've been thinking a lot about that as well and i i, I would i definitely am, am with you on the notion that he's not a non top 10 player. Uh, he's, he should always be in the top. He should be in the top 10 for a long time. And frankly, at least pushing toward the top five or maybe in the top five. But as far as getting back to number one, winning majors, it's going to be a tough road for him. And I, I think he's, I think we're always going to look back to the loss to Rafa a year ago is critical loss, not only for last year, but maybe a critical career loss because there was a chance to win a second straight major having on the heels of beating Novak to win the U S open in 2021. And he gets up two sets to love and he's got rapid three, two love 40 in the third, third set to break the match open. He loses seven, five in the fifth. I think it was very jarring. I mean, it's Rafa. He, we all understand that and Rafa is a supreme competitor, but it was a golden missed opportunity for Medvedev. I don't think he's ever been quite the same since he had the hernia problem after that, which didn't help. He couldn't play Wimbledon, which didn't help. The Russians were barred. There were a lot of things that were out of his control. 
but he's had plenty of time, I think, to sort of put the ship back in order, and he has not been able to do it. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch him the rest of this year. But you're right, the there's a much wider cast of players right now that can beat him than we thought was the case a year or slightly a year ago or slightly more. Uh, it, it there's a, a court a court approved that. And then, uh, yeah, it, it, it's not going to get any easier because those guys are improving and they will expo expose any rigidity. That's why I asked you if you thought, you know, it was a question of limitation. No glaring weaknesses, but you're also right about the different styles. I mean, we watched Curios knock him off twice last year, last summer, you know, on the hard courts. And, and he exposed that return of serve positioning from Medvedev beautifully. And Novak has exposed it was you know, selective serving and volleying against, against Medvedev. And uh, it doesn't mean he's not still a tough out, but boy, he, you know, winning strings of matches, putting together five big, you know, great performances to win a tournament, that, that's going to become an increasingly daunting task for Medvedev. Yeah, and I think another good example is Tsitsipas, a guy who had a lot of trouble with him for a yes. while. He right. started serve volleying, uh, yeah. hitting the first shot as an approach shot, just... Getting to net as soon as possible, I think, worked really well. Yeah, no, he seems to have turned that rivalry around. We don't know if he's turned it around completely, but he, he's in a whole different mental place when he plays Medvedev now than what it was up before last year. So, yeah, yeah I mean, he he's probably the most, he's one of the more compelling players in the world right now, Medvedev, for, but unfortunately for negative reasons right now to see if he can kind of climb out of this, this hole that he's in at the moment. Exactly, exactly. Another compelling story. Very excited to see what this man does in March. Holger Runa, who I'm I'm still kind of trying to figure out at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> join, join, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think my assessment, at least, of, of the Andre Rublev match was that he does most things better than Rublev, but it was just a, a maturity, experience, decision-making those are kind of the areas where Rublev separated himself. And uh, I, I just think the potential is massive. And he's just going to need to fine-tune the way he's playing, when to attack, when to defend, how to be consistent, all of that stuff. Yeah, I, I, good analysis. I mean, look, look, he had a good tournament, had some kind of a, a, a little bit of a minor injury when he was playing Rublev, but but nonetheless, he's up 5-2 in the fifth set. And, and he uh, then he had two match points with Rublev serving at 5-6 in the fifth. Then he won the first five points of the decisive third set tiebreak, the 10-pointer, and he loses that. Uh, I wonder whether part of that was he just – he he it's it's a great thing. We, they all have to play the score. They've got you got to bear down and know exactly where you are in the match and what's required. But if you get ahead of yourself, I wonder whether part of him was getting ahead of himself was that he just wanted another crack at Novak. It was excited, not in a cocky way, but just it was excited about the idea of maybe meeting him in the quarters. Who knows? Or just too excited about reaching the quarters. But he definitely that many opportunities shouldn't get away. It's one thing to be up five two and not close it. But then you got two match points on Rublev serve not close it. And then to have the cushion of a five zip lead in the tie break and not win that one. That was, that was a lot of openings that he did not uh, take advantage of. Yeah. And, and he's 
trying to learn how to relax on court. Even when yes. he had the cramping issues, he, yeah. he knew that he needed to just feel more relaxed. So the good part of that is that he wants it really, really bad. He's obsessed, he he's obsessed with the sport by all accounts. So I think it's a, a good quality that he needs to fine tune into a better quality. Uh, Cause I think, it, well, it can I, bite I think so. Yeah, I think so, uh, Gil. And I think that probably this year, I think there's going to be a lot of shiny moments for him this year, some ups and downs like we saw last right. year. And then by, I would say 2024, we're going to see a lot more maturity out of him and he'll be by then. I think he's, I think this year he'll, he'll definitely be a top 10 player. Uh, and he may not move too much. Maybe he ends the year around eight in the world seven eight in the world but i think the next year is where he could make a big move uh into the top mm -hmm. five uh, because so much more match play experience by then big tournaments against big rivals i'm with you i i predicted him at nine um before the year i always make a top 10 so we're we're on the same page um on that one uh speaking of the beginning of the tournament Andy Murray might have played the two most compelling and entertaining matches of the entire event uh, in the first two rounds. A win over Matteo Berrettini and a win over Tanasi Kokonakis. But in terms of what it means, like we all very much enjoyed those matches. In terms of what it means, did Andy Murray show you anything where, where your idea of what he can be in this phase of his career is altered? I hate to say it, but no, I, I, I think it was a stupendous effort, what he did against Berrettini, uh, especially because that's a much higher caliber opponent, no, all due respect to Kokonakis. That was a great win, too. But to beat Berrettini, who's had a couple of wins over him recently, and to do it from match point down, a glaring missed opportunity from Berrettini with the court open for a backhand pass, and, you know, he, he, anywhere in the court, and he nets it. But Still, Andy was terrific, and then he wins it in the fifth set tiebreak and follows it up with another five-set. But that's the thing. It's not as if he went from a marathon five-set win over Berrettini to beating Kokonakis in straight so that he can then give himself the reprieve and the physical ability to go on. I just think this syndrome of getting in long matches against almost any top-level player is, is just, it's too costly for him now at his age. And so I'm, I'm not optimistic that he's going to make any big moves. I was happy for him that he could beat a player of Berrettini's caliber and have that, the, the, the emotional satisfaction of following it up with another win. But it was almost inevitable that he'd lose to RBA after that. And, and he did in four. And I don't know. I just think this pattern, I, I'm worried it continues. What, what are your thoughts? I think he did show just by winning the Kokonakis match in five, an elevated level of fitness from prior years. I mean, at last year's Australian Open, he played a five-setter against Basilishvili, and then he lost in straights against Taro Daniel. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I was very encouraged just by the Kokonakis win, uh, even though he's a lower caliber than Matteo Berrettini. Just the recovery was there to win another five-setter. You're right. I mean, he needs to win more efficiently in that spot. Um, so I I wouldn't say I'm unchanged. I am more optimistic because he did, I think, show me a little bit more fitness than he's had in the past couple of years, which could hopefully serve him well. At the same time, majors still seem like like 
a very, very tall task to get deep into a second week with how hard he needs to work physically. Yeah, totally agree. And I think even the 1000s where you have to play day after day and demanding three set best of three set matches where he can be out there for three hours plus that, that, the same issue it, it gets in his way. You know, can he do it if more efficiently and more swiftly and save himself physically? So we'll see. I listen, don't get me wrong. I would actually like to be wrong. I think it'd be I, I, I'd be wonderful to see him reemerge and become something start resembling the old Andy Murray more, but I'm, I'm not that optimistic. I think, you know, here's what I would say. I could see him reclaiming a place somewhere in the uh, winning enough matches that maybe we see him in the top 20 in the world, somewhere between 15 and 20. I could see that uh, because I think he's going to win a lot more matches this year, but I still think in terms of really doing something substantial at a major or a 1000, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not optimistic. Very fair. Let's end on someone who we didn't see at the Australian Open this year, Carlos Alcaraz, who uh, injured his hamstring and had to pull out. I'm fascinated to see what he's going to look like when he comes back because last year, after the off season, it was such a different Carlos. Now he was good in 2021. But the physical strides that he made in the offseason, it just made him a completely different animal come the beginning of 2022. So now I'm just fascinated at his age, his talent level, what has he worked on this offseason to try to continue that forward trajectory after finishing year-end number one. So what are the things that, that you're looking for for Alcaraz as he uh, kicks off his year? Well, the first thing I'm looking for is there were signs at the U.S. Open that I, that I really liked where he's putting more emphasis on that bigger first serve to just take a little load off his shoulders and start, start firing it in there at 127 into the corners, aces, service winners, not have to, to scramble and work that hard for every point, even though he's very explosive off the ground. It, that takes its toll physically too. Uh, the other thing I'm looking for, Gil, is can he handle the... Um, the expectations, because last year was fun. It's always fun when you're on the way up. That was just a mm -hmm. sharp climb for him. And then suddenly he finds himself in a position uh, to, to finish the year number one. And he and he manages to do it. And it, it, it was more than he could have dreamed of at the start. You know, I'm sure he would have hoped for maybe a top five in the world. that would have been the the ceiling. But he gets number one. And now, you know, anything less than that this year or anything less than winning another major, it all it all can start playing with your mind. I hope that he, that Ferrero and others can keep him stable uh, mentally. And, I, and I, I believe in him, by the way. I don't I think he's a very strong minded character and a very disciplined and determined and very mature and is extremely mature. But this year is going to be a tricky year that was psychologically and going back to the Miamis and the Madrids and the places where you succeeded and trying to defend titles and then trying to see if he can do a little better than the quarters of the French and trying to see if he can have a better Wimbledon and then finally going back and trying to defend the open. That's, that's a lot on his shoulders, but I do think he will handle it quite well overall. And I still think he's going to have a, a great, a great season and in terms of his game, I don't know. I, I the serve is the one. Yep. I look to that beyond anything else. What else are you? What are you expecting and hoping for in that in that way yourself? 
Steve, you chose the two things that I would have said as well. You look at the serve, and then you just look at the mental. Because when things started to go south for Alcaraz, a little bit south, relatively south, uh, in the lead-up to the U.S. Open, it just seemed like he was feeling the pressure and yeah. uh, you know underperforming on the big points relative to the the regular points. And, uh, you know, I think it's just so big for him that he got that U.S. Open title under his belt because it can weigh on a player trying to win their first major. I think the fact that he already has that is a huge advantage. But at the end of the day, I, I think you're spot on. It's, it's, expect it's handling expectations and it's developing the one part of his game that technically lags a little bit behind the rest, which is his serve. Yeah, listen, it's going to be fun. And uh, my hope is that we're going to see Djokovic and Alcaraz meet at least three, four times this year, different places, different surfaces, hopefully at the majors, because those could be delightful clashes. The one they had last year was such a beauty, and Carlos managed to hang on there in the end and get him in the third set tiebreak, and it, it, was, it was a tremendous match from both sides of the net. And I think we could see more like that, although obviously we'll be, we'll be watching a, a higher level, more confident Djokovic than the one that played Carlos that day. Nonetheless, Carlos has the right attitude about playing anybody because he's really not intimidated by anyone out there. He, he Deep down, he thinks he should beat anybody if things are right, and it's the right, and he's and most of the time, he's able to back it up. Man, it's I'm excited just thinking about that potential. Uh, I, I also hope that we, we get to see that. I think everybody is. Uh, Steve, this has been incredible as always. Such a pleasure to do this. Time and time again, it's a long break between uh, the U.S. Open and and the Aussie. Um, so uh, just happy that that we got to do this after uh, another Australian Open. Well, two things, Gil, quickly before we sign up. One, I noticed somebody on Twitter asking you, you know, when, when we and you said we're going to do it again after the Australian, and it's <laughs> always a pleasure. And secondly. Uh, for the sake of the listeners, you were very, very good from the beginning at this. You had a real talent for what you're doing. And I don't see a great difference between you in 2017 and now. The only difference is like anybody else who works at his craft, six years experience like that, it does you a world of good. And I, I just want to say it is always a pleasure to come on and talk tennis with you. Thank you so much. Means a ton. A big thank you to Steve, as always. His latest book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, is available on Amazon. And uh, while we're plugging, quick reminder to uh, check out the Breakpoint Show. If you haven't, it's on this YouTube channel. It's also on the Crack Rackets Podcast Network, where Alex Gruskin and I go through the Netflix docuseries episode by episode, dissecting it from every angle. And uh, I'll also throw in a, a little, um, if you do listen on podcast platforms, it is an enormous help and much appreciated if you leave a rating and a review. Uh, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will read it on the next mailbag, as long as it makes sense to read on the next mailbag. So that's it. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.